Have you ever been invited to a dinner meeting only to find out you were the dinner? Sometimes we get invited to meetings where we find out the meeting was about us and someone has set a trap for us. Nehemiah had that problem. I want to invite you to join me today in Nehemiah chapter 6 where we go through this passage in a sermon I recently preached at Grace Evangelical Church in Congo Town, Liberia. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to join us in Nehemiah chapter 6, the first 14 verses. We're going to talk about how Nehemiah faced compromise and intimidation from his enemies. Seems like I remember a story, a spider story, about the time that the spider invited a chicken to come and have dinner. And when he arrived, the pot was there, the water was boiling, the rice was cooking, uh, the oil was there, the pepper was there, but there was nothing in the pot. And the chicken kept asking, what's for dinner? And the spider wouldn't answer. And he was not answering. Finally, he found out that he was the dinner. He was being invited because he was the dinner. Nehemiah was invited to one of those kinds of meetings. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, in Rwanda, the, the, uh, the Kenya Rwanda people have a saying, the rock that's seen does not damage the hole. So when the farmer is digging, if you can see the rock, you can avoid it, right? And you cannot let the, the rock damage the hole. You can, the, a, wise, a wise farmer will not allow that to happen. And so, uh, Nehemiah, in the same way, knew the tricks that were being planned by his enemies, and he saw them, and he avoided their traps. Many times, we don't pay, we don't pay good attention to the tricks of the enemy, uh, the devil. And so, we fall into his trap, and we find ourselves uh, in regretting the situation that we're in. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 26, he told the disciples in the garden to watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And so we need to be alert and we need to be discerning so that we can be protected from unfaithfulness and disobedience to our Lord. Amen? In today's passage, Nehemiah's example for us of, of watching for the rocks so that we don't damage our hope. Uh, he's an example to us that when we're invited to dinner, make sure before you come what's for dinner, right? Or you may be the main course yourself. Um, I don't know if you've been to those meetings. I've been to me invited to meetings like that myself in the past. And I arrived and found myself was the meat. Uh, and so you don't want to go to those. You know, we have watched Nehemiah so far as we've studied this book. And we've seen a man who has persevered fearlessly in the face of opposition, intense opposition. And every time we see him finding himself in, an, in front of an obstacle, we find him going, and his main defense is the presence of God in prayer. And, and so we've watched him. 
We watched his enemies begin in chapter 2, verse 10. First, they responded to Nehemiah with displeasure. You know, you see that in the church. Pastor, we're not happy about something. And you have displeasure. And if that person doesn't get their way, then it will advance like it did with Nehemiah's enemies to, to mockery and disdain. We see in chapter 2, verse 19. And then when they still didn't get their way, it advanced to furious anger in chapter 4, verse 1. And when they still could not stop Nehemiah and the wall being built, his enemies decided we will publicly resist him. And you even see this progression takes place in churches. And then they're still unsuccessful. They come to the opposition that we encounter today. They, it, they upgrade what they're doing now to deception and false pretense and false rumors and false prophecies. And, so, and like Nehemiah, we see our Lord Jesus, how he suffered under the opposition of the, of the Pharisees. They moved in the same general direction. First they were displeased with him. Then they mocked him and disdained him. And then they were angry with him and furious with him. Then they resisted him. And just like in today's passage, they progressed to intimidation and lies and false moral outreach. And I think of the, 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 the court session in the Sanhedrin, which was illegal. And they were testing him. Are you the Christ? And it didn't matter what Jesus answered. They were going to condemn him. But he answered... The very best answer you could think of. He stands there and he says, I am. And he gives them the name of God himself. And, and so he, we see he, was, he, he fought. He, Nehemiah shows us a messianic picture of Jesus, a shadow of Jesus who is to come. And ne Nehemiah is also an example to us for how to, to understand attack from the enemies and what God says about Handling intimidation and the threat to compromise in our lives from the enemy. So if you'll look with me in Nehemiah chapter 6, first 14 verses. Let's read together. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, Though up to that time, I had not set the doors to the gates. Sambal and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let's speak together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project here. And I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sandal sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. 
in which was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building this wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and even have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah now, this report will get back to the king. So, come, let us confer together. I say in this reply, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making this up out of your head. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak, for the works, and it will not be completed. But I pray, now strengthen our hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors. Because men are coming to kill you. If by night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sinned, but that he had a prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noyada and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching and teaching of his word. So we see here really something important. Nehemiah is under great opposition. And now it has turned ugly. They are after him now to kill him. And they are ready to do anything to say anything to accomplish their purpose. And I want you to notice a pattern here in the text. In the first nine verses, you see a pattern. There's a strategy of compromise. And in this strategy of compromise from verse 2 to verse 8, and then it has a goal of fear. And this goal of fear is settled by Nehemiah's prayer ends it. You see the same thing in verses 10 through 14. Go ahead, please, and move to the next one, please. I want to move on down. <clears throat> Go, uh, yeah, this is what I want you to see. There was a strategy of compromise. 
with a goal to make Nehemiah afraid. He ended it by responding to it with prayer. Then in 10 to 12, there was a strategy to intimidate him with a goal to make him afraid so that he would mess up, that he would make a mistake. He responded to it with prayer. You see the example that Nehemiah is giving us? Now back up one, one slide for me, please, Moses. Nehemiah's enemies are named Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They want to stop the wall. And Sambalat is turned now from being something that they, they really don't want the Jews to be important or more, or more strong, stronger in the place. Uh, they like being more in charge. It's, it's beyond that. Now it's turned personal. Now it's a personal thing with them, with Nehemiah. And their enemies, these guys, Sambalat, his ba his ba he has a Babylonian name. That's a, that's a Babylonian name. But it has a Hebrew meaning. And the Hebrew meaning of his name is hatred in disguise. So what would you think if your sister walked up to you and said, Good morning, my name is Hatred in Disguise. <laughs> you would immediately be on guard, right? <laughs> like, what are, you, what, what are you here for? He was governor of Samaria, but he was actually from over in Moab. He resists Nehemiah at every step because he's jealous of him. Like Samballot, Satan's main motivation with God is jealousy. You see that in Isaiah chapter 14. Just jealousy operates and, and gets to the place where it becomes personal and you're not just jealous of what they have or what they are or what they receive. It becomes so strong in you that you want to destroy your opponent. And this is Samballot. He wants to destroy him. He wants to wipe out Nehemiah. And Sambalat somehow represents for us our enemy, the devil. Then there's Tobiah, whose name means the goodness of God. And this man is from Ammon over in Syria. He's Tobiah the Ammonite. And he was always looking for a way to stick Nehemiah in the back. Everything about Tobiah was assumption, was presumption. He presumed. He was full of self. He was so inflated on himself. He didn't have room for anybody else in his mind or his heart, especially God. He could talk the talk, but it was all about him. It was about image. Here he is with a man named the goodness of God. But what he was really focused on was the awesomeness of myself, Tobiah. That's what he was thinking about. And so, you want to be careful not to be like Tobiah and substitute self for faith. Presumption for faith. Tobiah somehow becomes a representative to us of the flesh and all the loudness and the attention-seeking of self in our lives. And while I was doing work on this, I wanted to show you something that I ran across. And it is a temple that... Tobiah actually built a temple at the same time that Nehemiah was building a wall. Now, this is a picture of the temple. It's over just south of the city of Amman, Jordan, over in, uh, in that area, Amman, in that area. And so this, this building 
Uh, he built, and up the, up the hill here is his palace that he built for himself. He built this, and it is a uh, built at the same time as the wall in Jerusalem. The second temple that Ezra and Zerubbabel had built was standing in Jerusalem. And this building is full of um, symbols of, the, of King David's reign. Lions, lilies, and, and other things that are uh, representative of, uh, from archaeologists know, is representative of David's reign. And so he copied, we think he copied the temple that was in Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah and built it for himself. So he wanted it to look like he was a wonderful, religious, godly person. He didn't even believe a thing that was being done over in Jerusalem in that temple. He was an idolater. He counterfeited the, temp the, the real temple and he built it for himself here worship his own gods. In fact, if you go to the next screen, you'll see an example. This is what the front of it would have looked like. But you see, this is a lion. I don't know if you can see it, but it's they put them here on the corners of the building. You see them all along the corners. And there are also other things on the inside, the lilies and other things, that are, that are symbols of David's reign. So he, we think he copied it. Two good things about this. First of all, if he did copy the Jewish temple of the time of Nehemiah, we know now what it looked like. Because we don't really know. Because when Herod built it, he changed it. He renovated it, changed it a lot with Roman tax money, and then it was destroyed by 70 A.D. So this may have been what the second temple originally looked like in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. The second thing that's important about this is, especially for you young people who are in school and being told that the Bible is not true, this right here tells you that the Bible is true. We've got a man... In the book of Nehemiah, that was an enemy of God, who was a person that just, he made everything, was all about his image for himself. He's doing exactly here. And here's the, here's the thing. You say, well, how do you know Tobiah built it? Go to that next screen. Here's a picture of a man standing in front of the, his house, his palace. He wrote his name on the front of his house. He carved it into the, into the rock. That is Tobiah, written right there. I circled it for you so you could see it. So we know Tobiah built this. This same Tobiah that's in Nehemiah built this temple the same year as the wall was being built. And so this, I'm telling you, what this tells us is you can believe the Bible. The Bible is true. And you don't have to prove the Bible by the Bible. You can prove the Bible by looking at things like this. It's true. Literally true. There was really a man named Tobiah the Ammonite who built a temple that looked like a temple in Jerusalem. He wrote his name on his own palace so we know who he was. He wanted everybody to know who he was because he was all about Tobiah. And what that tells us is if that's true, then we can probably believe everything in Nehemiah just based on Tobiah's foolishness. Got it? All right. So Tobiah. And then there's Geshem the Arab. His name means rainfall in the dry desert. Now wait a minute. 
You can't have a dry desert and rainfall at the same time. No way. His own name is at odds with itself. It's an irony. It, it's an opposite of itself. Everything about Geshem the Arab is a lie. It's a seduction. It's a deceptive trap. Somehow Geshem is a representation of the seducing of the bait and switch of the world. You know, the world will market you one thing. A good life. Money, luxury, but the reality is something different. And so Geshem somehow models for us the world. Samballat models for us the devil. Tobiah models for us the flesh. And so we see that the world, we have the world, we have the flesh and the devil. They were all against Nehemiah. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 3 says, explains it this way. He made you alive who, you, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we see that these attacks on Nehemiah come sort of at a surprising time. It's like their last, their, their last chance. They built the wall, but there are no gates. So there's still open access for the enemy. They have not closed off the gates. So the work is largely done. So the attack comes when it's sort of least expected. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. So here's Nehemiah coasting on success. And when we do that, when we are finding ourselves in a place of success, we are the most success susceptible to attack. Just as Jerusalem's defense is about ready, Nehemiah's defenses of his own heart are tested. The first attack seems to be some harmless meeting. A harmless invitation. Very gracious. And for all the opposition up to this point, Nehemiah's enemies have been unable to defeat him. So they send this gracious invitation to him. Meet us on the plains of the beautiful, fruitful, green plain of Ono. I found two meanings for Ono. One was vigorous. The other one was iniquity. So let me invite you to the beautiful, seductive plain of iniquity. That's what they wanted to do. And, and so a gracious meeting. We want a wonderful, gracious meeting. For what? A meeting for what? They didn't say what the meeting was for. But Nehemiah knew what it was. It was a trap. They planned to harm him, he says. They wanted an assassination. They wanted to get him out of his stronghold, off of his turf, away from his people, onto their territory. Catch him off guard. Ambush him. He would be a day's journey from his base where no one would be able to respond to him if something went wrong. And you see on the map here, it, was, it says 37 miles, but I think it's probably 37 kilometers because it's actually around 20 to 27 miles. 
out to the plain of Ono. This is an area which is a neutral zone between Ash, the, king, the province of Ashdod and Samaria and Judah. And so this was an area they could meet where everybody would be okay. But, the, but no one in that area was in favor of what Nehemiah was doing except the Judeans. So he would have been surrounded by enemies, and he knew that. And they wanted him off his base so that they, he would not have what he needed. Nehemiah said, no. How did Nehemiah know how to answer? Because Nehemiah had a critical leadership skill called discernment. No discernment, and Nehemiah would have been walking to his own funeral. And the future of Israel laid in the balance. You know, sometimes being a servant of the people, we get it confused. Being a servant of the people does not mean being a puppet of the people. And you do whatever you're told. You have to be a leader. And being then that, Nehemiah recognized the danger. He gave a firm no. He said, he answered them no, not one time, but four times. It was getting ridiculous. John MacArthur says, in his simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions about our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says that it's every Christian's responsibility to be discerning. He says, Paul says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The apostle John had a similar warning in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. According to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for you and me. You, it is required for a believer. He said, Paul says in Philippians 1, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so you grow in discernment by using it. The key to an uncompromising life lies in one's ability to exercise discernment in your life. The pa a pastor in America called Tim Challey says, when you look at discernment in the Bible, it's always connected to spiritual maturity. So if you want to be a discerning Christian, then you need to be a mature believer, one who is growing in the faith, one who is understanding the Bible, one who is growing in his knowledge of the Lord. One of the signs of maturity in a person is the ability to say no. One time I remember someone was sitting with my mom and she was really struggling about making a decision. And her friend told her, you know, no 
is a complete sentence. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to give an excuse. You just say no. No is what you have to do sometimes. You have to draw a boundary. You have to choose not to compromise when it comes to following God's call on your life. Some people want to please others so much, they will say yes to everything, and then they can't do anything well. Are you mature enough to know what needs protecting and to be able to draw a boundary around those things? For other people, you know where the boundary is, but they don't know where the boundary is. You need to inform them. This is a boundary. You crossed it. Please don't do that again. Do you have a hard time telling someone no? Are you a people pleaser? What's going on in your life right now that you need to put a stop to? You are allowing it to happen. You don't like it. It's not right. It's harming something or someone you love and you have not said anything. You let it go. What is it? That you need to say, stop. You need to stop this now. I can't allow this to go on any longer. What's going on? What's happening in your family? What's happening in your work that you've let go on too long? What is a hindrance or a hurt to you or your family? Or a hindrance to what you are called to? What is it that is hurting those you love and you're responsible for? Maybe it's time that you need to tell someone no. And then we see from verses 5 to 7 that after four attempts, Samballot begins, he decides he's going to turn up the pressure on Nehemiah. He sends an unsealed letter, meaning a public letter. So it has no seal. So every time it's passed from one person to another on the way to Nehemiah, what do you think someone's doing? An official letter from the government between one governor and another. I wonder what it says. Mm. Whoa. Can you believe this? I don't know what you know about. I, I'm hearing that Nehemiah has some things going on over there. <laughs> I'm hearing that and maybe you remember you know the Persian king has been so good to him. Why would he why would he want to do that? Yeah. He wanna do that. He wants to overthrow it. That's what I'm hearing. I don't know it. You see how it happens? It was an unsealed letter and he did it on purpose. Governments do the same thing. They leak information. Corporations will leak information. People in church will leak information. Just enough to leave a cloud hanging in the air to make everyone question what's happening here. It creates disunity. It creates, undermines authority. And so here we are, it, 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 it puts things into question. It unbalances things. It undermines confidence in our leadership. The accusation accused Nehemiah of two things. First, the letter said that Sanballat was very concerned over the rumor that he has heard that Nehemiah may be planning to rebel and overthrow the government. The second thing was that 
Nehemiah planned to make himself king. Rebel against Artaxerxes, who's been so good to him. How could he do that? Samballot was pushing Nehemiah into a deceptive ploy to meet him. Maybe trying to appeal to Nehemiah's desire to clear his name. But what he did was put Nehemiah in a really bad place. Because if Nehemiah refuses to meet him, then it makes him look guilty and he's trying to cover up the truth, afraid for the truth to come out. If he meets him, he's walking straight to his funeral. A trap. You know, rumors are very powerful tools to manipulate things. And this one has all the characteristics of a textbook rumor. First of all, the source is unknown. A lot of people are saying, the scripture here says, it is reported. <laughs> Who could? Oh, sometimes you will see, I experience this many times, pastor in the churches I pastor. Pastor, a lot of people are saying, who say it? What I mean is, I think. That's what I mean. I'm saying. Nobody's saying but them. And so they're creating something. Who reported? Nobody knows who reported. Second, rumors are marked by inaccuracy and exaggeration. Sam Ballot says, Nations are discussing this rumor. What nation? Really? What nations? Maybe one Ammonite, one Arab, and one... What's the, what's the other guy? Yeah, so these three guys? Yeah, those are the three nations that are discussing this? Is that what you're talking about? All right. And third, rumors are designed to stir up fear. The accusation here is ripe for unrest among the Judeans. This, this has already worked before in Ezra chapter 4 under, under Ezra. In Ezra 4, 6 to 23, there was just such a threat when they had, produced, had built the foundation of the temple. And then there was the rumor that went out, oh, they're building a temple because they want to revolt. And all the Jews said, oh, maybe we need to wait. Let's just wait. And so the book of Haggai had to be written. Haggai had to get up and preach and say, finish the thing. You waited 14 years, finish it. Don't be afraid of these people. God's with you. And so, so rumors are designed to stir up fear to stop something. And fourth, rumors are designed for and always lead to hurting somebody. Personal hurt and misunderstanding. It puts a question in someone's mind about a person and their reputation for years and years and years. It hurts when a person's integrity is drowned and dragged through the mud for no reason. Fifth, rumors are started by people with evil motives. Sam Ballot wants to come and let's take counsel together because he's intent on something. He's intent on helping Nehemiah to an early grave. He wants him to make a trip to Ono a one-way trip. The most dangerous threat to the unity of the church is the tongue. 
Those people who spew disunity lack of several things. First of all, they lack wisdom. Wise people will ask themselves, is this something that's necessary for me to say? Maybe I don't even need to say this. People, wise hearers ask themselves, is this confidential information which I should probably not be listening to? Maybe I need to walk away. Not only do they like wisdom, they also like accurate information. You don't get what is correct from them. Gossipers also, they don't have a sense of a proper place to say something. They don't know or have propriety. They don't ask, well, what I'm saying benefit my listener or build up my listener? If the information is criticism, they're not thinking, you know, it's not always wrong to criticize. But if you're criticizing to someone who can't do anything about it, then you're not trying to solve a problem, you're stirring up trouble. Right? And, and so, can my, can my listener help correct the problem? Sometimes you just have to ask, talk to someone that you trust because you find yourself, am I the only one who thinks this way? I think I'm going crazy. Maybe I'm the crazy one. And so if it's someone who can help you correct the problem in your mind. But when you meet someone who has diarrhea of the mouth, what do you do? The best response is loving correction. You shut off the valve of their mouth with a gentle and a firm boundary. You know, my brother, I don't want to hear that. Sister, I know, I understand what you're saying, but that's, a, that's all I want to, I, I don't want to be participating in that one. But what if the rumor is about you? Nehemiah is a good model for how to respond to a rumor about yourself. First, he calmly denied the charge. Such things as you're saying have not been done. He says in verse 8. Second thing he does, he puts the blame where it belongs. He says, you're inventing this stuff out of your own head. Verse 8. The third thing he does is he takes his hurt then to God. Because it hurts when someone's got a rumor about you. He takes it to God. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Verse 9. Well, how do we overcome these things? We overcome, Revelation 12 tells us, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, that's the truth, and that they did not love their lives even when faced with death. That's how we overcome. The second thing that we see here in this passage from verses 10 to 14 is that prayer overcomes and overwhelms intimidation. Prayer overwhelms intimidation. So here we see that same pattern again. There's a strategy of intimidation, a goal of fear, verse 13, settled by prayer, verse 14. So having failed twice again, Nehemiah's enemies wrap themselves and decide to wrap themselves up into moral outrage. They're going to use religion to try to bring him down. And they sound all saintly and holy in order to manipulate Nehemiah into their trap. The irony is that for all the religious talk, no one has anybody paid attention to the fact 
that these guys are not even believers themselves. They come from people groups that stood against the Jews when they were trying to come into the promised land. They are either, their people group is even mentioned in the law that they can't even come into the temple grounds because of the way they acted. They are not believers. Ammonites, Moabites, and Arabs. They were not allowed. Now, by the way, our God is a missionary God. And when Jesus came, he rent the veil so that every people and every tribe and every tongue, even me, a Moabite, even me, an Ammonite, even me, an Arab, is welcome before Christ. Right? And welcome for that free gift of eternal life. But here we see they are not even believers, but they're using Jewish religion to try to bring him down. His own religion against him. What better place to catch Nehemiah unaware than in a place he feels safe? The temple. Doing something that he loves to do and that gives him great strength. Praying. So here we see in verses 11 to 13, again, it's Nehemiah's discernment that helps him see that this is just a trap covered up in religious clothes. It's a heavy thing, man, when the pro- a prophet of God speaks a word to you. But God helps Nehemiah discern this is not God speaking through this prophet. This is Satan. Shemaiah, who once was, he was a, a guy, in a, he was a servant in the temple, probably a Levite or maybe a priest. And he, he spoke words that God gave him. He spoke those to others. Once a person who listened to God, now he listened to people who can pay him. Let's look at Shemaiah. Shemaiah is a a servant of God that was corrupted by money. I'm going to be very frank with you. There are plenty of those in Liberia. There are also plenty of those in America. There are servants of God who started out well. But like Balaam, Shemaiah's work for God was bought off at some point. And in this case, it was to manipulate Nehemiah through fear. A man or woman who serves God, maybe even you, starts off sincerely following God, listening for his voice, being obedient to his direction. But somewhere along the way, something happens. Maybe it's reducing the time in the word and in prayer. Maybe it's not attending the fellowship as much as you need to. Perhaps it's from fear of lacking something. Maybe getting one's eyes off the one who gives all the provision. Valuing money and what money can do for you. Following then the money. And then greed takes hold. And Paul says greed is idolatry. And so that progression takes place in the lives of any of us. But it's most ugly when it takes place in the life of a servant of God. The servant of God becomes corrupted by money. He'll do what he needs to do to secure his income. So what what was Shemaiah trying to manipulate Nehemiah to do? Nehemiah, even though he was a governor of Judah, he couldn't enter the temple for two reasons. One, because he worked for the Persians... And he was in the imperial administration. 
he had had something medically that had taken place in his life in order to be an administrator in the Persian government, you have to become a eunuch. And so because he was a eunuch, he was, according to Deuteronomy 33 in the Mosaic Law, excluded from worship in the temple. He couldn't go in the temple. Second, Nehemiah is a government official. He's a believing Jew, but he was not a priest or a Levite. And Numbers chapter 18 said, Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the Levites. So about four centuries earlier, there was a king of Judah who decided he wouldn't care what the rules were. He was going to walk into the temple and do a sacrifice. His name was King Uzziah. And God was gracious to him. He wasn't struck dead in the temple. But he was afflicted with leprosy, which I think might have been worse. <laughs> in some ways because he had a slow death 2 Chronicles chapter 26 Sanballat and company have been unsuccessful in making Nehemiah vulnerable to assassination they know that since he's the Persian governor has the favor of the emperor they can't really touch him politically except to start rumors but they didn't hesitate to create doubt and fear for Nehemiah if they can just get him to break the Mosaic law, if his enemies then, if he could break the law, then his enemies could say, you see, Nehemiah can't even follow his own religion. They can destroy his reputation. They will take away all of his moral authority to leave. And they can stop the wall from being completed and accomplish their goal. What was Nehemiah's response? Verse 14. He asked God for justice in regard to his enemies. Remember Samballat and Tobiah, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noyada and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. Notice that Nehemiah asked the Lord to remember what they did to make things right on his own account, not that he was going out to do it. He wasn't going to get his revenge on them. He was turning that over to the Lord. He was letting the Lord handle it. He, he didn't have an unhealthy focus on his enemies. He chose to leave that matter to God, and he had a purpose and a job to do and a calling, and he needed to accomplish it. And the way to do that is to turn that over to the Lord and move forward. That's what Nehemiah does, and that's where we leave him today in verse 14 in Nehemiah. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing you are and a kind judge, a leader. You guide us through opposition, through intimidation, through a temptation to compromise our principles and your word. Lord, thank you for your goodness. We ask that you would keep us safe from these things and that we would be people who would run to you in prayer when the opposition rises up against your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Nehemiah was a man who knew how to handle compromise and intimidation in the prayer closet. I hope this message has encouraged you today. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. We can be heard on iTunes, on Spotify, 
on Google Podcasts and several other platforms. I'm Gene Brooks.